It's uh, great to be together this morning, and uh, really, really thankful to be able to celebrate um, all together. It's, it's, uh, it's always challenging having two services, and it's really special when you get to have one like this, and we all get to lift our voices together and praise God and uh, just be encouraged by uh, one another as we sing and as we lift high his name I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles, and if you haven't turned there already, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And uh, I wanted to, to, to speak this morning, kind of close our summer theme out. I know we, we closed the book of Joshua last week, but the theme of rest, um, I want to close out officially this morning. And I've entitled our, our message this morning, True Rest. St. Augustine famously prayed, oh God, our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. And I think all of us can identify with what it means to feel restless, maybe even particularly in this season. Uh, we we know that rest is often in life in general very hard to find, but maybe over this last season, these 18 months, you find it particularly hard to rest. I've found that this season has been uniquely challenging. There's a different kind of tired that we experience from this season. There's unique tensions and pressures and turmoil and disagreement. And it's, and it's happened over such a sustained amount of time, and we can't seem to find the rest that we, we so desperately long for or desperately need. Even some of us this summer, we know what it's like to go on vacation looking to find rest only to come back from vacation longing for a vacation from the vacation. I have a, a, a fitness tracker that I wear on my wrist. I go to to bed at night and it tracks my sleep and every morning I wake up and I look at the app and it tells me that I did not get sufficient rest. And I say to the app, I didn't need you to tell me that. We can't seem to get the rest we need. Some of us can't stop our minds from racing. Even when we have downtime in our, in our lives, even when we're maybe on vacation, our minds tend to take over and we can't get outside of the, the many relentless pressures and anxieties that we are constantly facing. Our OCD kicks in even in those, those quiet moments of our lives and we have to check our phone or we have to get up and do something else that we haven't yet completed all of these things tend to squeeze us and invade our thoughts and they prevent us from experiencing true rest. We desire rest. We are made for rest. And yet real rest, true rest, is difficult, if not impossible, to find in our lives. The book of Joshua, as I mentioned, has been a book that's all about rest. That's been the dominant theme that we've been looking at because Joshua highlights that over and over again throughout that book. 
which seems a little bit ironic when you consider where we've been. If you've been with us through the book of Joshua, what you know is that it's filled with war as they enter into the promised land. It's a book about battles and conquests. There's a lot of fighting and a lot of work that needs to be done. And yet, over and over again, we read that this really is a book about rest. It's a book that's about finding God's promise rest. That's the goal. Battles and war and conquest were not actually the end goal. The end goal was true rest. In fact, the book of Joshua ends in this unique way, alluding to the rest of the people of God. We saw this last week. Joshua dies at the age of 110 years old, and we know this, that he is buried in the land of his inheritance. He has received the the promised land of rest The bones of Joseph are taken and they're buried in the the promised land, the inheritance of God's people. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, is dead and his body is buried in the land of his inheritance. And you see, all of this is a nod to the fact that these individuals who faithfully follow the Lord, they die and they rest in peace in the promised land of God. And yet what we see is this, that Joshua brought God's people into real rest, but he did not bring them into ultimate rest. And the New Testament actually gets the final say on Joshua, on the entire book of Joshua, and also on this idea of God's rest. And that's what the author of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. But we're going to look specifically at chapter 4. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 1. It says this, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The book of Hebrews is written to weary Christians, Christians who are genuinely tired 
Christians who are on the verge of giving up, of throwing the towel in. And the author, he writes and he wants them to endure to the end. But in order to do that, he calls them to learn to rest in the true rest that God offers. And as we've just read through this section, one of the things you should see is this. It is filled with deep and profound and somewhat complex theology, and yet the, the structure, the backbone of this text is actually fairly obvious and clear. The author mentions the word rest 10 times in these 13 verses. He's telling us what his emphasis is. And what we see is that he actually... He references this idea of rest in a number of different ways. He talks to us about a past rest, a rest of God, and he links it back to creation. He talks to us about a Sabbath rest that's linked also to creation, but we know is practiced amongst the people of God in the Old Testament. He tells us that there's a future rest that still awaits the people of God, and he calls us to understand that even now today, there is a present rest we must enter into. Today, he says, today you can find rest. Today you can find rest so that you can not only find life and satisfaction, but so that you can endure till the end through faith. And that's what he's pleading with them for, and that's what the word of God is pleading with us for. It is offering to us today a true rest. I want to just quickly pull apart this passage, and I want to show you four components of this rest, this true rest. First, notice this, true rest comes from Jesus. True rest comes only from Jesus. And we actually see this in verse eight. He tells us, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. He goes on to say, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then he says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The first three verses of chapter four, they're alluding back to the book of Joshua. They're reminding us of what we've just been studying all summer, how God, through Joshua, led the people of God into the land of Canaan, the promised land where the people of God were told they would find rest, rest from their enemies, rest, a place to, to, to stay and to be with God. God would dwell in the midst of his people a place where they could worship God wholeheartedly. And throughout this passage and in chapter 3, he actually is quoting from Psalm 95. He talks about David speaking of this rest. That's because David wrote Psalm 95, of which the author of Hebrews quotes and references repeatedly in chapters 3 and 4. He tells us that David, this is fascinating, David, who lived in the promised land, he was in the promised land when he wrote Psalm 95, and he actually told the people who would read that psalm, it doesn't matter if you're in the land right now, what you need to understand is that there is a greater and a deeper rest that God has for you. He tells them that the promised land is actually a sign, and it points forward to a, a greater rest what is greater than rest in the land is a rest in God. The land is a sign that points both backwards and forwards. It points backwards to God's rest in creation. That's why he keeps referencing, referencing creation and God's rest. But it also points forward to the new creation that is yet to come. And what he's doing is he's moving us to think about 
shadows and how they point to substance. That's the language that Paul uses in Colossians 2. There are certain things in the Old Testament in particular that were shadows, they were signs, and ultimately they point to something greater, a fulfillment, a culmination, the substance of that shadow is what matters most. In fact, in in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, you don't have to turn there, but here's what he says. He's referencing all of the Old Testament. If you know anything about Hebrews, he's going through the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system, the temple, the priesthood, and even the land. And here's what he says. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They're all pointing to something greater, something better. They were real. All of those things were real, and yet they were real shadows. The substance that they point to, the author of Hebrews tells us, is Christ Jesus himself. And what he's telling them is this. Don't be satisfied with mere shadows. Follow them right to the substance of Christ. Now think about this. In the context of the book of Hebrews, these are new converts, most of them. Or or they're, they're relatively new or immature Christians. And at this time in history, to convert from Judaism to Christianity was a potentially dangerous thing. It could cost them everything. That's exactly what was happening. They were being persecuted by the Jewish community because of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. They were losing everything because of it. They were losing jobs. They were losing losing status in the community. Some of them were losing their homes. Many of them were losing family members who refused to even talk to them any longer. And here what he is telling them is this, listen, no matter the mounting pressure, do not revert back to the shadows. Don't don't listen to the temptation and the pressure that they're putting on you to pull back to what is the, the shadow and is no substance at all. He says, stick to the reality. Stick with Jesus. Jesus is better. If you, think, if you cling to the shadows, they'll slip between your fingers on the last day and they will not serve you in any way. They, they will not benefit you. Now, I know that we hear this and we're like, well, this isn't really an issue for us. We're not being persecuted from the Jewish community, nor did most of us come out of a Jewish background, so there's no real temptation to revert back to the shadows of the Jewish faith, to the temple system and the sacrifices and all of those things. But here's what I do know. Most of us, non-Jews, have come out of backgrounds. We've come out of this world. We were surrounded by people of this world, and we did things that were common in this world. We lived in sin. We lived in rebellion. We lived in all kinds of, of wickedness that the world praises and prizes. And sometimes following Jesus is very difficult. It's hard. And there's very often, even amongst Christians, perhaps new Christians, but even even those maybe who have become a little bit complacent in their faith, to feel the pressures of the world, to hear the, the, the opposition from the world and the hostility of the world. I mean, it's not fun to be mocked for our faith. It's not fun to be ridiculed or persecuted like some people are around the world. And the temptation could be to fall back into what we once did, how we once identified ourselves with the, the sin and the wickedness and the unrighteousness that we once lived in, but God saved us from. And so the call for Christians is very often, don't go back there. That's what you've been rescued from. We're tempted to run back to the world to find rest in what could never give us rest. 
We're tempted to run back to the things of this world that are simply broken cisterns, that they, they can't hold water. And instead, the author of Hebrews is commending us and commanding us to continually run to Jesus, the fountain of living water that never runs dry. Even Joshua, as we read about him here in verse 8, is real, but is a real shadow. The name Joshua, it's translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. If you were reading the, the Greek New Testament, when you came across this name Joshua, guess which name you would have actually read? The name Jesus. It's a subtle nod and pointer to the fact that Joshua himself was simply pointing towards a greater Joshua. While Joshua led the people of God into the physical promised land way back then, Jesus is the true and greater Joshua who is leading his people into the new promised land, the new creation. This is why Jesus said to those who are following him, those who are weary and heavy laden, he, he invited them saying, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. That is Christ's invitation to you. Not just that he gives us rest, but that he is our rest. Secondly, notice this, true rest is experienced in our souls and it's cultivated in our lives. Appreciate there's some umbrellas coming up there. I didn't do this for me, just so you know. I'm not like, this is for the worship equipment, okay? I said, no, I want to be with the people. I don't need this. They said, well, somebody's going to get electrocuted, so you need to have this up there. I'm like, okay. True rest is experienced in our souls and is cultivated in our lives. You see, what God is offering you today is not some kind of a superficial rest. Not something that's trite or trivial that the world itself can, can offer you temporarily. He offers you something much deeper than that. He offers you deep rest for your soul. And what he does here is he connects it to creation rest and Sabbath rest. In verses 3 and 4 that we read, he says this. He says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, it's a nod to God's creative activity. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's, by the way, Genesis 2, verse 2. He points them back to this rest of God. And what he's saying is this, what believers can now enter into, what you get to enter into today. All right, everybody stop. We're going to bow our heads and pray. Oh. Umbrella's up. I'm guessing we have 30 more seconds of this and it's over. I'm going to keep going here, guys. You do your best to hang in there. I'll do my best to keep this quick. pulls us back into creation rest, which by the way, 
This is what the Bible says, that after the sixth day of, of God's creative activity, he rested on the seventh day. And by telling us this, by bringing us back to this rest, he's telling us that this was always God's intention for humanity. It was to know this rest, to enjoy this rest, to live in this rest. And this rest, by the way, is not a rest of inactivity. It's a rest of completion. And it's a reminder, by the way, that this rest is broken and it's elusive because sin has thrown us and the cosmos into a state of, of chaos or a state of unrest. It's interesting when you read about God's creative work, the seven days of creation, one of the things you see is this pattern emerging. On the first six days, it said there was morning and there was evening. But guess what happens when you get to the seventh day? There, there is no morning and there is no evening referenced about the seventh day in scripture. I don't know if you've ever caught that before. And that's because there is theological significance to the seventh day. The idea is that the rest of God, the rest that God offers, was something that humanity was intended to live in forever and ever and ever. It was a rest of God partaking in the completed work of God where we get to enjoy that rest in his presence for all eternity. That's the way it was supposed to be. But sin invaded the world and broke that rest. It created unrest in the cosmos and unrest in our soul and now we long for that rest that only God can provide. The people of God were invited into that rest, and they were invited to cultivate that rest by practicing the Sabbath. God's creative rest formed a pattern for the people of God. They were to work six days like God and then rest on the seventh day. Work, rest, repeat. And this practicing the Sabbath one day a week, this one day was supposed to be different from all the other days. The word Sabbath is Shabbat in, in Hebrew. And the word actually means to cease or to stop. It, in effect, means to hit the pause button on the busyness of life, on the typical things that capture your time and your attention and the things that you have to do to, to survive and make it through in this world. It means to cease from striving and to stop working. But Sabbath isn't just about what you don't do. It's also about what you do and how you create space for what you do. Again, let me, let me frame it like this. It's, a, it's about hitting the pause button on the busyness of life in order to rest by dwelling with and delighting in God. That, that was the objective. You see, it's a focused and intentional rest. Not like our typical rest by simply going on a vacation or kicking our feet up at the cottage. That's, that's not the kind of rest that this is talking about. It's a dwelling with God. It's about being before doing. It's about presence before productivity. It's about sitting at the feet of Jesus learning to just be with him. But it's also a time to delight in God. There is a joy in the Sabbath. We set aside time to worship and delight in, in many earthly, tangible things and ways. We are 
to be with one another and to eat good food and enjoy God's creation like we're doing right now. You see, this is in a sense part of what it means to practice a Sabbath kind of rest. It's not just about solitude and time alone with God. It's communal in nature and it's designed to reflect what we will one day experience in full. A time where not only we will be with God in his presence, we together as God's people will all be with him. We will all dwell with him and delight in him forever and ever in everything we do. And, and, and you know, we don't practice the Sabbath today like they did in the Old Testament. But there is a sense in which what God's people do on, on Sundays is intended to reflect some of those Sabbath ideas and principles. Hebrews 4 tells us that the Sabbath day is ultimately fulfilled now in Christ. And it points us towards the fullness of our rest in Christ in the new creation. You see, right now, in Christ, if you're a believer, in Christ, you dwell in the presence of God. Right now, if you're a believer, in Christ, you delight in the new creation work of God, his saving work. So let me just reiterate this. Our rest is ultimately in Christ and not merely in a day of the week. Scripture does not bind us to setting aside one 24-hour period of the week as it used to be in the Old Testament, which by the way was Friday evening till Saturday evening. But let me emphasize this, the principle itself is still wise and helpful for us. This right here, what we're doing in many ways replaces the Sabbath for we, the people of God, are the temple of the living God. His presence dwells within us right now. We delight in him, amen? That's what we do when we gather. But we must build the Sabbath rhythms of church and of spiritual practices into our lives. We need to unplug from the busyness of life to cultivate rest in Christ that reminds us that we are citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. We're awaiting our final rest in a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. Here's what we see thirdly. True rest is produced by God's word piercing our hearts. You'll notice what is a familiar passage to, to many of us, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God. He talks about the word of God and, and, and what it does and what it is. He says it's living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, he talks about the word of God here in some potent ways, some very vivid, descriptive ways to help us understand what the word of God is trying to do in our hearts. It's helpful to remember that, that the Bible, what we have in our hands here, is a, a, is a product of dual authorship. We believe as Christians that the Bible is written, yes, by men, but it is superintended and it is inspired by God himself. So there is human authors and there is a divine author and the two have worked together to produce what is authoritative, inerrant, infallible, completely sufficient for all of life and godliness. 
And it's the word of God that is used by God when it is opened and read and proclaimed and understood. It functions like a double-edged sword that pierces directly into our hearts and has power to convict and to transform sinners into saints. It's two-edged. I think this indicates that there is a dual purpose. The purpose of God's word is both to reveal and to heal. It is to both break down and to build up. It is both to condemn and to conquer. You see, the word of God, as, as it's described here, has this power to reveal us, to expose us, and in some senses, listen, to judge us. And the point is that it first in order, listen, to leave us, uh, to, to save us, it has to expose our shame and our guilt. You cannot be saved until you know what you need to be saved from. And so the word of God does that. It opens us up and it shows us that every one of us, according to God's standard, is a sinner. None of us meet his standard perfectly. And God is a holy and righteous God. One day, every one of us will stand before him and have to give an account for our lives. And here's what we will all find out apart from Christ. We all stand guilty and condemned. But you see, it cuts in order to heal. It's like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon that makes a wound in order to bring healing. And God's grand plan of redemption, the gospel is the point of the sword. The gospel tells us, yes, that we're sinners, but God loved us so much that he sent his own son. That though we could never save ourselves, God in his kindness has come to save us. That God lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died our death in our place on the cross. He paid for our sin. He rose victorious from the grave. And here we see that there's two things that the word of God does, that the gospel in particular does. One, it points us to the only hope for our salvation. Or secondly, it condemns for eternity those who reject it. You see, you can either have eternal rest or you can have eternal wrath. And the word of God is trying to pierce your heart to call you into the eternal rest of God. And that's why, lastly, true rest is enjoyed through faith in God's salvation and in God's sovereignty. In verse 3, he says this, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he swore, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He hints here, and he's actually very explicit at how we receive God's salvation. Chapter three, by the way, he swears that some will not enter his rest. Here he reiterates that as well. And he alludes to the wilderness generation. Again, before Joshua took the promised people into the promised land, an entire generation died off in the wilderness because they refused to trust in God. They refused to believe his promise of salvation for them. Every one of them died in the wilderness. But verse 1 tells us that therefore the promise of entering his rest still stands. It's still available. It's currently being offered. They didn't enter into the rest because of hardness of heart. That's another way of saying of unbelief. They heard God's promise, but they refused to believe it. They refused to believe that God was able to do what he promised he would do. 
They turn to someone or something else. You see, it's only through belief that you can be saved. And that means this. This is so important. That means that it's a gift. It means it's a gift of God's grace. It's not something that you could earn or accomplish. It's not something you can construct for yourself. It's not about balancing the divine scales. It's not about you trying harder or doing the right kind of things, trying to make yourself acceptable to God. The whole point of the gospel is you could never do that. And God loved you so much that he came and did it for you. Rest is found only by faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And it's a gift that he holds out even now. Right now, he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. You got to get into God's rest is what he's saying. You, you got to get into it. When, when do I need it? Today, he says, if you hear his voice. Today, there's a sense of urgency. God is inviting you into his rest, and you never know when the day will be your last. And so he says, when you hear the offer, when you hear the invitation, today, grab hold of Jesus Christ by faith. Enter into his rest right now. Enjoy the promise of God for you. Verse 11, he says, let us therefore strive to enter into this rest. And this striving isn't about working harder to make sure that you're believing in Jesus. Believe in order, excuse me, the idea is to believe in such a way that your only hope is Christ and then you obey because of it. True rest is first and foremost a gift from God that can only be enjoyed by faith in Jesus who is God's salvation. And as believers, true rest is enjoyed through faith, secondly, in God's sovereignty. We trust in Christ for salvation and we find God's rest. And then as we live our lives in this world, no matter what kind of opposition we face, no matter what kind of chaos surrounds us in this world, no matter what's going on in politics or economics, no matter what we face, we have a belief in a God who is sovereign over creation. He spoke it into existence. He sustains it right now by the word of his power. There is not one random molecule or atom in the universe. God oversees it all. And we can rest because we know our God reigns supreme over all creation. Our ability, listen, loved ones, this is so important. If you're in Christ today, our ability to rest is directly related to our trust in God's ability to reign. And our God reigns. If I have found true rest in Jesus right now, I can be assured that he will bring me all the way home into the full and final rest of Jesus later. Nothing will stop that because God is sovereign over every part of creation. So the command for us is to strive to enter into that rest, that final day of rest, to keep on believing, to keep on trusting, to keep on obeying, we don't strive for grace. We strive from grace, from the grace of the one who died and rose and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Let us find rest in him.